Let's pray real quick to get us started here. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to really look at it, to wrestle with it, uh, to just uh, try to understand better what it is that you're saying to us and to interpret it correctly and apply it diligently. Help us to do so, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you got the opportunity to take these sheets home and to deal with uh, the outer darkness a little bit more. By the way, does everybody have sheets? Jerry, do you have sheets? No. Nope. You want sheets? Yes. Okay. Can we pass down uh, one of each copies of those sheets? That would be great. What would you say are some things that you noticed as you went over Matthew 8 again and again and again? Matthew 8 and Matthew 22. Yeah, it should be Matthew 8, Matthew 22, Matthew uh, 25. I thought this article, the, or this handout on Charles Stanley, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, First Corinthians what? Uh, 3, 11 through 15. Okay, so the, the passage that deals with the judgment seat of Christ clarifies the idea. Okay? Now, does it, here's the thing. I, I gave you the, the Charles Stanley article because he has a real simple way of writing. Uh, he, he's done a really good job of, of um, what do we want to say, brevity, but yet is able to effectively address the situation. The only problem that we would deal with there, and I'm not saying that we can't, but the only problem that we would deal with there is the idea of outer darkness is a phrase that's only found in the book of Matthew. You see what I'm saying? Now, can we relate it to other scriptures? Well, yeah, we can relate, you know, the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can relate that to the rapture. Now, of course, the word rapture is not used in the Bible anywhere, but we have to be very discerning about our timing. Uh, so let me just give you like a, a, a quick for instance if we're reading various um, passages. <coughs> Excuse me. The rapture of the church is imminent, okay? This is just an example. Uh, the rapture of the church is imminent, meaning that there is nothing left to happen for it to take place. It could happen at any moment. However, the second coming of Christ, where he is actually going to touch down on the Mount of Olives and judge the nations... That is going to come at a time that we can date, should we know when the rapture takes place. And why is that? Because we know there will be seven years of tribulation, three and a half years of false peace, and three and a half years of great tribulation, as we're told in Matthew 24. So when Christ returns and sets foot on the earth, we can document, we can actually say, that's when this is going to happen at this time. We can do it to the, to the day. Of when that's going to take place. The rapture, we cannot. The problem is, is that his second coming with his foot touched down on earth is contingent upon the time of which the rapture happens. You see what I'm saying? So it makes it harder today, but we know there's a seven-year interval of tribulation. So we have to be careful when we're looking at concepts from book to book to book and make sure that we're considering the whole context that's going on about how that's going to play out. Now, yes, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, verses 11 through 15 help us 
and this idea, but it doesn't bring up the phrase outer darkness, and so we have to be cautious, not prohibitive, but cautious whenever we're dealing through passages. Was there anything else that you noticed from working through Matthew 8 at home? Was there anything that you observed, observed, observed? No? Real quick, I'm looking through these different translations. King James uses the phrase outer darkness. Uh, The 77 New American Standard uses outer darkness. The New English Bible uh, uses, uh, uh, and this just goes to show you what a paraphrase will do in situations. Uh, Many, I tell you, will come from east and west to feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But those who were born to the kingdom will be driven out into the dark, the place of wailing and grinding of teeth. That's a very interesting uh, way to look at it. Be driven out. Uh, into the dark that's probably taking some liberties driven out is very different from being cast out Uh, and so i think we need to take note of that the jerusalem bible but the subjects of the kingdom will be turned out into the dark uh, where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth so that's that's an interesting thing to have parallel translations to see how people have dealt with it in the english Um, nothing else anybody noticed let me ask you this question does does anybody um the guy who, uh, the leper in verse 2, does the situation with the leper have any sort of connection to the incident with the centurion? They both had faith. Okay. So one of the commonality that we would see is, is the idea of believing is exemplified, either with it be a physical uh, malady of somebody personal or the centurion interceding for uh, the uh, life of his servant. So either one of those would be good ones. Tabitha, do you need handouts? Yeah, I've never been here. Okay. Um, we have those two there. We might not have another copy of chapter 8. He touched the leper, but he didn't touch the centurion's uh, okay. servant. Okay, so notice not only is there faith exercised in both instances, but there's an increase... In the level of faith, I guess we would say, not that he needed to have more faith or a different faith, but that the obstacles were a little bit less, uh, I don't know, restraining, I guess we would say. Doesn't the centurion make the comment, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof? Just say the word. It'll be done. Is the faith of the servant irrelevant? Well, I'm sorry, the, the, the faith of the centurion, forgive me. I know, but is the faith of the servant irrelevant? You know what? It may seem like it is. We don't know anything about it. The text never brings any sort of emphasis on it. So that's interesting. What else do we see? For how many of us does... um, Well, let's see here. If we put 10, 10 through 13 together, wouldn't we say that that's really what attracts our attention here? Mm-hmm. Have we noticed anything different that we didn't point out last week in class? <clears throat> How many people didn't work on Matthew 8 throughout this past week? <laughs> there you go. It's all right. 
I think it's interesting with the leper when he first comes through. Doesn't the leper have to say, you know, I'm unclean? Usually. As he walks through the large crowd. Mm -hmm. And then he comes to the Lord and the Lord heals him. So everybody knows a leper is there. But then mm -hmm. when he leaves, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. So, so quite <laughs> you've got to know the lepers suddenly. Not, Not only that, but he, he touched a leper. Right. So, oh, yeah. 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 And it makes you wonder if maybe because of the leper's presence, I mean, he probably had no problem clearing a line. Right? You want him at Walmart every once in a while to get through. So he probably cleared those people straight out and he was able to get straight to Jesus, right? And chances are that might be why he says, don't tell anyone, because the crowd's dispersed. So notice that. He no longer has to announce himself. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the leper's presence gave Jesus immediate privacy with him. So that's kind of interesting. You know, it doesn't, doesn't matter how miraculous Jesus is. Somebody comes around with leprosy, and if you touch him, you're going to get it and be plagued for the rest of your life. You're getting out of there. It's not happening. So that's interesting. Why does it matter that he Well, this is what is sometimes known. I can't remember what it's called. The messianic secret is what it's called because there was a time and place of which his messiahhood was to be revealed, but it was not yet. And so usually when he asks people to please keep it quiet, it's because he is operating according to the Father's timetable, not his own, not anybody else's. Anyway, <laughs> he, he maybe didn't yeah, want no, all the lepers in though. That might be the case. Well, he healed three other, was it three or ten other lepers together and only one of them came back to say thank you? It was ten, yeah. Anybody know what happens once he tells the person, you know, go show yourself to the priest's. And I don't remember what the incident was where this happened. Go show yourself to the priest uh, and tell no one about this. I think that might be the one that was healed that came back. But instead of listening to Jesus and obeying him, he went and he told tons of people. Anybody remember what problem it created? Everybody wants to go ahead and get healed. Everybody started, started mobbing him. There were throngs of people. In fact, if you remember at one point, he had to get in a boat and get out on the water just to get away from people and they had to be on the land. So it created a mob situation for him that made it that much more difficult for him to uh, minister. What I think is also equally as great is, is even though the guy disobeyed Jesus and still went and told, Jesus didn't take his healing back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you did what I told you not to do. Here, give that back. That's pretty interesting. He's, he's, he stays, he's, you know, Jesus doesn't give like that. He gives completely. I had a question. Yes, ma'am. Number 12. Verse 12. Yeah, the sons of the kingdom. Yes. Passed out. Mm -hmm. Who is the sons of the kingdom? Who are they? Who are they? Believers. Believers. They are believers. No. How do we know? But they're sons of the children of the kingdom. How do we know? <coughs> Say so. Where? <laughs> In twelve, the children of the kingdom. Your source, man. Okay. Sons of the kingdom. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are they? If they're unbelieving, how'd they get in the kingdom? And another good question to ask ourselves, and this will really put you on a fun ride, is, is there anywhere else in the book of Matthew that the phrase sons of the kingdom comes up? That's something important to know. 
See, that's what's interesting is we read through this and we go, now, wait a second, who are these people? Immediately, that should trigger in us... Now I've got to do a research on that. You see what I'm saying? Now I've got to know where the sons of the kingdom are. <laughs> now, what's beautiful about this is the literal word app. If you guys have not downloaded it for free and you have a smartphone, I encourage you to do it. But what's great is, is I can go to the search pad and I can type in sons of the kingdom. And I've got results, but in the gospels, there are only five results. Matthew 8, Matthew 13, twice, Matthew 16, Matthew 22, let me see here, da -da 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 -da. no, 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 commonality of word, commonality of word, commonality of word, ah, Matthew 13, 38 is the only other, well, Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 13, 38 is the only other place where this is brought up, Matthew 13, 38 is where the sons of the kingdom are, so here's what we would do, uh, to take a slight detour here, we would take our Bibles, Turn to Matthew 13, 38, and I'm going to ask you to look there in the Matthew 13 section, and I want you to back up to probably where the most logical starting place would be so that we will get a run of the context as we step into it. 36. 36. Okay. Now, does everybody see the heading above 36? What does it say? The tares explain. The tares explain. What, is, what are we dealing with here? <coughs> the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Mm -hmm. Now, notice, this is a parable. So now we're switching our genre, which is going to make us think differently how we read, from a narrative situation of Jesus talking with people in the presence of a centurion. And he's obviously giving a slight rebuke to Israel about their unbelief because a Gentile who doesn't have all of their history and privilege has believed beyond compare. He had great faith and he will be an example of those who come from east and west and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. In that place, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you keep that in mind. And now what we have to do in order to understand the sons of the kingdom is we have to read the parable of the wheat and the tares and then Jesus' explanation of the wheat and the tares to properly identify who the sons of the kingdom are. Okay? So, where is the parable for the wheat and the tares? Is it back to 24? Okay, 24. Who would like to read 24 through 30? Great. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. Then the wheat sprouted and formed heads. When Then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where... Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servant asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Okay. So there is the parable of the wheat and tares. And if you will think back, if you can remember back when we were going through this passage in foundational framework, we talked about that the one thing that is very interesting about wheat and tares is that until they have the head of grain form at the top, they virtually look synonymous. Can't really tell a difference at all. 
until there is a maturity process that takes place. A time will reveal what happens. Now, we skip down to verse 36, and there's going to be an explanation that's going to go on here. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Who is the audience? Disciples. Disciples. Who's speaking? Jesus. Jesus. So it's important that we understand and we have the subject under consideration. What is the subject regarding the wheat and the tares? Explaining it. No, he's going to explain it, but what's the subject? People. No. Sin. No. Children of the kingdom. No. Go back to verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is the subject. Notice what he says. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to this. This is the picture I'm going to unfold about what things are going to look like in the kingdom of heaven. This is something to do with the kingdom. Okay? So when it's going to matter about the subject of sons of the kingdom is going to be in direct relation to the kingdom. Now we might sit here and say, well, duh, because they're called the sons of the kingdom. But notice that that also gives us some sort of parameters of thinking about our Matthew 8 passage. Okay? So let's pay attention to what happens. Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Notice he is giving you the identity of all of the players. Who's the sower? Jesus. Everybody see that? That's his messianic title as the Son of Man. So it says here, and the field is the world. There you go. That was mentioned in verse 24. And as for the good seed, also in verse 24, these are the sons of the kingdom. The good seed is who? Notice that. So does that answer the question? I don't know, does it? Because watch what happens. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Does that help any? Because he tells you how he's going to do it then. Verse 41. The sons of man will send forth his angels. So notice the angels are acting as reapers in this situation. And they will gather out of his kingdom. Notice out of his kingdom. Which means what about his kingdom? People will be taken out of it. People will be taken out of it. But what does it tell you? What does that tell you about the kingdom? It's established. It's established. Now pay attention to that. So what are we talking about in in time? We are talking about the 1,000 year millennial reign of Christ. That's what we're talking about. The time that the kingdom is set up. So it says here, we'll gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and we'll throw them into the furnace of fire. So notice what you find out from this verse here, uh, verses 41 and 42, is that, excuse me, Uh, The tares of the sons of the evil one in verse 38 are the stumbling blocks and the people who commit lawlessness who will be taken out of the kingdom and will be burned. 
who will be thrown into the furnace. Look what it says. Into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Who are the righteous? And the wheat are who? The sons of the kingdom. So is this the same gnashing of teeth as... No, it's not. See, that's what's interesting. If you conclude that outer darkness is the lake of fire... Then, then yeah, you would say, yeah, the weeping and gnashing of teeth is the same. But we make the mistake of confusing the emotion with the location. If the outer darkness instead is something else other than eternal damnation, then notice the same emotion is in place, but the locations are different. The furnace that it's talking about here is obviously the lake of fire. Now, how do we know that? Because the kingdom is already set up, and the kingdom is already going on, and during that time, there will be a growth that takes place, and everybody's going to look the same. But when the maturing process comes, when the rubber meets the road, you're going to find that there are some people who are actually tares, and some people who are wheat, and those tares will be stumbling blocks in the kingdom. They will be gathered up by angels. They will be bound together, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Well, that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens at the end of the millennium. Remember, Satan is let free, and he mounts up a rebellion of people who have only known the reign of Christ perfectly. And they will come against him and march on the holy city. And it says fire comes down from heaven and consumes them all. And they are cast into the lake of fire. I'm a, not, how come I'm not seeing Because it says the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Yep. So why are they getting cast out? In chapter 8? Yeah. Why is I that? Thank you, Arlene, for your articulate and astute observations. <laughs> See, this is exactly what you want your Bible study to do. You want your Bible study to unearth so many questions that you have unanswered that you want to throw your hands up and say, why in the world did I even embark down this path to begin with? And the reason is, the reason is, is because the Holy Spirit is laying roots in you deep in order to get rid of preconceived thinking. Well, that's just the way that it's always been. And he is generating in you new paths to understand the word. This is exactly what you want. I can't tell you how many times, days, that I've sit here and looked at the word sometimes and be like, oh, you know, why bother? Forget this. You know, and been in frustration. But notice when I get fleshly about it, I discount it. I have to remember it's the word of God. And the spirit in me wants me to know exactly what he's saying. So this is a good question. Why is it that the good seed is called the sons of the kingdom at this point in this parable in Matthew 13? But in our Matthew 8 situation, it says that the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Why is that? Anybody know? But. Why is that? Well, it's not just location. Let me ask you a question. What was the remark that Jesus made to the Jews in Matthew 8? Not just that. I'll tell you the truth. Many will what? Many will come from east and west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> okay? And we, we read about that, that they 
they're pretending to be um, a part of us, but they're not. Okay. Or they, they, they think they should be. No. Nope. They're believers, but they didn't use what God had provided them with. Well, here's here's the here's the problem here, man. This is so good. <laughs> well, here's the thing you think about: if they're believers, and if we are assuming, let me give a, give a little bit of it to you. If we're assuming that the sons of the kingdom in Matthew eight are the same sons of the kingdom in Matthew thirteen, then we're assuming that they're believers. But yet, if they're believers, the outer darkness is something other than the lake of fire. But in Matthew thirteen, it seems pretty clear to me that that's talking about. The lake of fire. Does you see how that works? So those believers become unbelievers when they're cast out. I tell you what, a good Methodist would probably sign up for that trip. You know, yes, I believe that totally. That's exactly that brother lost his salvation. He should have remained fervent for the Lord and stuck with it. It goes back to the rewards. They won't have certain privileges. Okay, but if they won't have certain rewards and privileges, that still doesn't change the problem you have in Matthew thirteen. That the angels are the reapers and gather them up and cast them into the furnace. Did you say that these were the people that had only known the perfect reign of Christ? Okay. And then they would rebel. Okay. So and be cast out for that. Okay. So Matthew eight is talking about before the millennium. Ah, ding 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 ding. <laughs> Depending on when the feast takes place. And how do you get into the feast? Invited. Well, you're invited, very much so. But who are those people that make it into the feast? We're going to see some of that later when we look at it. Again, we're not so much concerned about interpreting right now as we are observing. But in that period, oh, hold on. Answer my question. Answer my question. How do you get into the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting at the same table? I picture everybody going to Paul Bunyan's and like you end up in the same room with them. Aren't they Gentiles that accepted the invitation? Well, it says many will come from east and west. Those are the nations. And will sit, will recline at the table. Now that's a position of comfort with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth how do you get a seat at the table through jesus they were, well those who were invited well, were saved, yes but that's part of it okay those who what invited weren't worthy where are you at you're looking at something else we're not even at yet Where? colleen set that down <laughs> you need to be you need to be in matthew 8 you need to be in matthew 13 you're being tricksy over there. Okay. Or into the into the kingdom specifically? Okay. You you guys you guys are completely missing the context of Matthew eight. Why does Jesus turn to the Jewish crowd that's with him and make the remark that he makes? I tell you, I have not found what? Faith. Such no, not just such faith. Great, great faith. Great faith. This guy who has no Old Testament history says, "All I got to do is speak a word," and the servant, however many far miles away or feet away or whatever, he's going to be healed right then and there. This guy believes it. What gets you to the table? Great faith. 
See, that's the interesting thing. Well, we, our pro, one of our problems is is that sometimes when we talk about works, we divorce it from faith. If fa- if works aren't done in faith, they're flesh, and that's sin. You see what I'm saying? That is that is trying to get something done for the kingdom of God using everything but the tools that Jesus provides. That doesn't work. That doesn't work at all. Last thing you need to erect a barn is concrete supplies. That's not going to help anybody. It's like somebody bringing tinker toys out to a construction site. <laughs> Nothing's going to suffice like that. It's the wrong tools for the job. If you're trying to get self-glorification done, you use the flesh. If you're trying to get God full glorification done, you believe all that he has said. You see what I'm saying? That's what institutes spirit-led works in our life. Notice the way you get a seat at the table is great faith. Notice it's not just faith in Christ. That's simple. That's easy, actually. You say that. It's a conviction that he is who he says that he is. That's how you get eternal life, right? God loves the son. Or God, God loved the world. He gave his son. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. They don't perish. So that's simple. But notice in this situation, he's talking about it's great faith, which means what was the reason why the sons of the kingdom were cast into outer darkness? They didn't have what? Great faith. didn't have great faith. When it came down to it, they didn't believe him to the degree that they should have. Not just to go to heaven when they die, but for more than that. And if this situation, like Greg said, is taking place in Matthew 8 and Matthew 13 is obviously taking place at the end of the millennial kingdom, you're actually dealing with two different types of designations for sons of the kingdom. Who are the sons of the kingdom in this situation? Do we know? In, in Matthew 8. Jews. Jews. Yeah. In fact, we would say believing Jews. But because they don't have great faith, because they're not willing to believe to the uttermost, let's say it that much, that they're not willing to appropriate his messianic power in their lives. They're still steeped in tradition. They're still still steeped in tradition. You know, even Nicodemus was having this problem. We see how the Jewish mindset struggles with this idea. How can a guy be born again? Does he go back in the womb and come out a second time? I mean, he doesn't get it. Good grief. What kind of nightmare is that? But notice that's where his thinking goes. But you see what I'm saying? Notice that's where his thinking goes because he can't wrap his mind around it. There are plenty of Jews that believed in Christ. We see that over and over and over. John 2, John 3, John 4, John 5. Over and over and over, we find believing Jews everywhere. My favorite's John 12, but for fear of the Jews, they didn't profess it publicly. You know, because they were going to be cast out of the synagogues. They still believe there's no question about their salvation. It's John 12, 42 and 43. They still believed. Still believed. But as far as when it came down to this moment of... Well, well, Jesus, I don't need to crowd you. I don't need to flock to you. I don't need to even put this guy down on the bed and bring him over to you so that you can touch him. You don't even have to touch my servant. I believe who you are. Say the word. It's done. You have authority. That's huge. I don't know about you, but I could stand to be more of a centurion in my life than a legalist. You know? I could stand to have more great faith. Go ahead. Back to the barns. What's that? Can we get back to the barns? I guess. <laughs> I guess. You said if you're going to build a barn, you wouldn't bring concrete supplies? I'm talking about if you wouldn't be building walls, putting roofs on, roof on and stuff like that. I'm not pour. saying you wouldn't pour a foundation of concrete. <laughs> Is that really where you're at with this, Laverne? Come on. Come on. 
<laughs> so notice, because you're dealing with two different time periods, Matthew 8, you're dealing with a declaration before the feast that takes place. But notice in Matthew 13, you're dealing with something that takes place at the tail end of the millennial reign. You're actually dealing with a designation of sons of the kingdom. But notice, the first sons of the kingdom, let me go ahead and put it this way, because this will be fun how we're going to link it together. We're not worthy to be at the feast. And since they weren't worthy to be at the feast, the feast went on without their presence. Cast them aside. And so what you have then is you have now people who have been in the kingdom who were found worthy. Those are now the sons of the kingdom. Everybody see how that works? Time period makes a great deal of difference. In fact, I would say that we've kind of changed dispensations at that point, And that should make us think of things just a little bit differently. There's a progression in what's revealed to us. So this is not heaven. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. So I still have a chance. You still do? <laughs> yep. So. I think it's interesting he uses the leper, which is the lowest of the lows. Yep. And the centurion, who is the highest of the high. Yeah. Yeah. Notice that. Doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't discriminate. And one, one we, you don't know if the leper was a Jew, and you don't know, and obviously the centurion was a Roman. Yep. One you would turn away from, the other you would put on a pretty face for. But we don't know anything about the servant anyway. Jesus is the great equalizer. He is. Servant could have been a slave. Could have been. A Jewish slave. Could have been a slave, yeah. Which is very different from 17, 1800 slavery. That's important. Everybody wants to transport American slavery into the situation. So So let's do this. Because remember, we're just observing. We're not interpreting. We still have two more places where the phrase outer darkness is used. Let's go to our page, Matthew 22. And we don't have much time left, but we're just going to read through this all the way through. And then I'm going to ask you to make some observations on your own throughout the week. And you can come back next week and we'll pick it up and we'll walk through it all together. Here we go. Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Now real quick. There's your genre. What is a parable? It is a teaching that is given alongside a truth that Jesus wants to communicate. Okay, So he's going to paint a picture for everybody. Verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fattened livestock, and are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, 
<clears throat> How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. There's our food for thought for the week. Let's pray. God, I pray that you give us understanding of your word. Help us, Lord, to think passionately and critically. Not just analytically, Lord, but to put ourselves in this situation. To really feed off of it and to draw from it, Lord, all that takes place. And the great speechlessness of this man when he's asked a question. Uh, Father, I pray that that leave an impact on us to think critically about this. Please bless our week in study. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.